Now, Joel has asked me to, uh, to continue, it's a continue, right, in your uh, Exodus series, in this, uh, this series on the Ten Commandments. And so if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus 20, the text I'm going to be preaching for you today is verses 4 through 6. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. Let's look at that text and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, we now come to focus on the preaching of your word. And Lord, as we do this, we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to move. Lord, we ask you to move in me as I seek to be faithful to this text, to communicate not just the meaning, but the burden in this text to the people you've gathered. And Lord, we are dependent for your Holy Spirit to move in each heart that is here that you would illuminate our souls and our minds, not just to the the teaching of this text, but to the specific and personal application you have for each of us to make. And so, Lord, we come here expecting you to move. Lord, we believe you delight to change us by your word down to the very joint and marrow. And so, Lord, would you do that And bring yourself glory by changing us here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I have an observation to make. In our society, in my lifetime, I believe we are as irreligious and as antagonistic as we've been. And yet there is a really deep-seated irony in the irreligious tone of our day. Have you noticed the irony? I'm not sure our society recognizes it. Our society functions according to some very strict doctrines. Society on the whole worships at the throne of fame, self-expression, and relativism. Our economy is largely built on idolatry, designed to create and sow discontent into our lives while promising contentment if you just upgrade your phone or get enough likes on your social media page, if you just trade in your car, if you just find the wife or the husband you were supposed to marry in the first place. Society's doctrines ironically preach independence, free thinking, and inclusion, 
while at the same time dictating exactly what you have to believe to avoid being excluded or canceled. Society at large claims to be irreligious while being a very unforgiving and merciless religion. The idols that it worships are not openly called gods, but they're worshipped as gods. And let's be honest with ourselves. Many of society's gods have made their way into the church. I don't say that to cast blame, but just to help us open our eyes to this fact. We are as in need of this commandment as society is in need of this commandment. We've not outgrown our propensity to be prone to wander to be prone to leave the God we love. And so this is why we have this second commandment. Calvin famously said that our hearts are idle factories. We have this uncanny ability to turn just about anything into something we can serve as a God. And so we need this commandment Because the very heart that beats in our chest still has the remnants of idolatrous desire within it. Now, the text I read, that we read together, has some peculiar things that we should probably address before we get to the heart of the command. My hope is by addressing some of these questions or topics up front, when we get to the heart of the idolatry, the command here in the second commandment, we won't be distracted by the things that I'm about to address up front just to get them off the table. For example, we won't be halfway into the message and you won't be asking, what does it mean that God is jealous? Let's answer that up front. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? Now, we've got to be careful with that word that we don't associate God with the feelings we have when we are jealous. Okay, it doesn't mean that God's insecure or codependent or bitter. He's always right in what he does, and God is always right in how he does it. So remember, God entered into a covenant with his people. And this was true long before Exodus. And it's true even with us today. That covenant that we have with God is an exclusive relationship between God and his people, between the bridegroom and us, the bride. And so devotion to him is right and good and appropriate. By devotion, I don't mean warm feelings. By devotion, I don't mean we visit him fairly regularly. By devotion, I mean we are dedicated to God and no other. It is an exclusive dedication that we have to God. Our wandering from him is wrong and harmful, and inappropriate. And so in his holy jealousy, 
God says he will not share us with other gods. Why? Not because he'll feel bad, but because it is devastating to his bride. It is for you that he is jealous. It is for your sake that he is jealous. It is not good for us to wander. And God, when he sees us wandering, will come after us with a relentless commitment. Not so much so he's not rivaled, but so our hearts are not divided. When we get that, when we understand the holy pursuit God has for our good, we thank God that he is a jealous God. It's an overflow of his holy devotion to us as his covenant people. So that's what it means here when he says, for your God is a jealous God. There's a second question I want to address. And that's, why should future generations suffer for the sins of their parents? Okay, verses 5 and 6 seem to indicate kind of plainly that God will punish our kids for our sins. Or, maybe put a little more personally, God punishes us for the sins of our parents. Seems to be what he says there. But one of the most important things we have to learn as students of the Bible is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Does God ever speak to this topic elsewhere? What else does he say about this very confusing verse? It's one of the first places we have to go to understand what God means in a verse that seems confusing to us. And Ezekiel 18 helps us quite a bit. Ezekiel 18.20 says this, The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now the challenge is Ezekiel 18.20 is equally clear, isn't it? And they seem to say different things if we don't go the next step and say, what could this mean where Scripture seems to say two different things? You see, according to Ezekiel, God does not pass judgment from a guilty parent to an innocent child. But what does it mean then? Through our conduct and the culture that we set in our home and in our church and in the community that we are, we are always sowing a legacy. We are either building a godly one or tearing a godly one down. It could be a good legacy that you're building. It could be a bad one. But it is a legacy each and every day, one way or the other. So this commandment calls us to look at what we are sowing into future generations. What is my life now doing for the children in my home. If you don't have children in your home, you're still building a legacy. What is your life now doing for the children of this church? We just saw a child dedication where the members of this church stood up and you committed before God and one another to walk in a way 
that will set an example for these little ones. And the not-so-little kids that are in the congregation are also watching. This commandment also calls us to look at how we view prior generations. So it calls us to how do we live with the next generation in view, and how are we viewing the previous one? And Kevin DeYoung speaks to this in his book on the Ten Commandments. He says, you can't say, I'm only doing what my parents taught me. You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or culture or personal history. God will punish the next generation if they continue in the sins they learned from the previous generation. That's the point of the warning. And so we love to be, at least society, maybe not you, hopefully not you, but at large, society loves to push away from the responsibility for their wrongdoing and blame parents. Blame the previous generation. And this commandment, combined with Ezekiel 18.20, simply does not allow us to do that. As individuals, we, we need to realize we are setting either a smooth road or a rough road for the next generation. How you're living now, if you are living in, in idolatry, if you are living in sin, you are making it easier for the next generation to live in sin. You're teaching them what is and is not acceptable. And so they don't have those core biblical values to discern between right and wrong. You're making it easier. Now, when they do sin... Ezekiel 18 tells us that's on them. But we've laid the trap. We've set out the bait. We've cleared the way. Let me not leave you there. That's a very depressing place to leave you. If you're committed day by day to walk in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, if you're faithful to sow not just godly habits, but godly culture and godly air into your home and the church community, even if the children turn away, they remember what godly air tastes like. They remember what truth sounds like. They remember what freedom is like. And when they come to a place of even being shaken in their sin, they have this core environment, this legacy you've laid for them to return to. Okay, but friends, today, in your own life, where you may be prone to say, well, you have no idea the house I grew up in. You are right. I don't. God does. And God was not sovereign then. It's not that he was not sovereign then. He was as equally sovereign then as he is now. And now he's not saying, well, don't worry about your sin. You couldn't help it. He's calling us to account to walk in a way now, even if you've inherited a bad legacy, to walk in a way now that you are changing the direction of the legacy you received into one that leads to righteousness for generations to come. All right, that's the second question I wanted to clear out of the way. And now what I want to do is I want to look at the heart of this command which we see at the beginning. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the command. Now this, this is just as relevant for the church now as it was for God's people in Exodus. And so I'm going to go over three ways that we are prone to, to falling short of this command. Three ways that we've got to be on guard or we'll end up breaking this. The first one is that we make idols out of creatures. We are prone to making idols out of creatures. Norm Wakefield points out the danger. Although our idols are seldom made of wood or stone, we still use raw, natural material of flesh and bone. The spirit of idolatry tempts man to look to creatures for happiness. Husbands look to wives, wives look to husbands, parents to children, children to parents, employees to to jobs and employers, employers to employees, church members to pastors, pastors to church members, and on and on it goes. All of these fall into the forbidden category of the earth beneath. Now, what is he getting at here? What is the the point here in this making idols out of creatures? Husbands, wives, children, parents, friends, jobs, employees, they're all good things. They can all be gifts from God. However, when we take that good gift from God and we, we rest the hope of our happiness on that thing, we've now taken a gift from God And we've made it God. Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your pastors, your these have not been given to you to supply your happiness. This is where so many relationships fall apart. When we're not feeling happy, we feel like what? The other person is failing us. But what's happening is when when we're not deriving sufficient happiness from a person, we're just acknowledging that person is not God. They were never designed nor equipped to provide you with the happiness you need. Not the best of them, not the worst of them. God is the only one worthy of your hope for happiness and joy. And we've got to be very careful we don't supplant God with something that God made. For the young people here, let me just ask you a question. Is there someone whose acceptance matters so much to you that you can't rest until you figure out how to get it? Church, Do your hearts rise and fall on what one particular person thinks or says about you? Is your confidence in God and his word shaken when you face the reality that community group leaders, deacons, and pastors are also finite sinners? Could it be that it's shaken Your faith in God is shaken because you've unintentionally elevated a creature to the level 
of a creator. Sorry, a, a creator to, to the level no creator. Sorry, I'm going to come back. A creature. I thought about changing the whole thing because I kept tripping over these words. Is it possible that you have fallen into the temptation of taking a creature and trusting it like a creator, raising that creature to no level, to a level no creature should be raised? Let's just be honest enough with ourselves to say, okay, what are the relationships in my life now that used to be good but are tense? Am, am I expecting God in this person? Or am I more healthily trying to trust God for this person? We can be tempted to make idols out of creatures. Second, we make idols out of desires. Now, perhaps you're not as prone to idolizing creatures, but we can fall victim to idolatry in our very desires. James 4 tells us that conflict often arises from desires that wage war within us. And when they are raging, we are willing to sin to get what we want. When you are willing to sin... To get what you want, even if what you want is a good thing, your methods reveal that you've turned from God if you're willing to sin to get it. We are even capable of taking desires for wonderful things and turning them into idols. David Pallison, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, said this, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. Natural affections for any good thing become inordinate, ruling cravings. Let me just illustrate this. Maybe you're a parent who just wants love and respect from your kids. Maybe you're a spouse who wants peace in your marriage. And maybe you're an employee who just wants a better job. Maybe you're single and you just want to be married. Maybe you're a teen and you just want to feel like you belong. Perhaps for you, you find too much of your identity in sex, or gender, or looks, or social groups, or cliques, or views, and I could go on and on and on with the desires we have that can rule our hearts. Let me just tell you, for me, historically, the idol I have fought most in my heart over the last 20 plus years has been the idol of peace. I want my kids and my household to live at peace with one another. And when I put it that way, I sound like a really nice guy. When my kids are fighting, I just want them to know Jesus as the Prince of Peace. He's made peace between them and God. He can make peace between one another. We could spend hours in Ephesians 2. He's removed the dividing wall between brothers and sisters. And so when my kids are in conflict with one another, I rise above it. 
My character doesn't rise above it. What I mean is, when they're yelling at each other, my great temptation is, I know I can yell louder, and so I rise above their volume, and I can just squelch it. You know what happens after I do that? There's silence in the house, but there's no peace. Anytime we bend the knee, at the altar of one of our desires. We worship in the name of that desire and never achieve what that desire promised us. We'll get some counterfeit form of it and it'll never satisfy you. It's this great temptation I have had and it's a desire for a good thing. But I can't sin to get a good thing. I can't leave God on the way to a gift from God. I've got to walk with God the whole way. So do you feel that you cannot be happy in the Lord if he doesn't grant you this desire or that desire? Lord, I'm going to hold out on you because you've held out on me with this. Oh, friend, don't hold out on Jesus. Oftentimes, he goes right at the root of our love for whatever you filled that blank with because he is a jealous God who knows what is good for you. And he wants your affections and your hopes to be on the rock that will never fail you. Not, not bending at the altar of something that cannot help but fail you. Third, we make idols out of God's good gifts. This is when we take the very things God has given us and we adulterate them by placing them either above God or in the place of God. And the Exodus story paints this beautifully, tragically, but beautifully for us. The Jews, as they left Egypt, they were not only being granted freedom, the Egyptians were giving them their gold. They left with all of this gold. Knowing the arc of the story of the Old Testament, they were given this gold eventually for the temple. But we don't get to the end of Exodus until we see how they used the good gift of gold that God gave them. What did they do with it? They melted it, and they actually crafted a literal idol out of the good gift that God had given them. God provides for us still today. Friends, he's entrusted to each of us varying levels of financial provision. So let me ask you, is your money being put to use for God? Or is it acting as God in your life? Are you finding security in how much you have. You may say, Rob, you've got to look at my bank account. There's no way to find security in that. The problem is the opposite is also equally a problem. Are you insecure because of the little that you have? Our security does not rest in our abundance or in our want. Our security is in our God who cannot fail us. 
And so is, the, is your money for, in its abundance or in its very small amount? Is it acting as a, secure, as a provision of security for you? If so, it has risen above God in that area of your life. God has given many of us mouths that can talk, feet that can walk, hands that can move. Are we putting these good gifts to use for God or are we crafting socially acceptable idols? Do we fail to act for God because of our idol of fear or rejection? Think of the opportunities we may have to share the good news of Jesus Christ and think of the reasons that we may not. Now, there may be some good reasons in any given moment not to. I'm not casting judgment over decisions you've made. I'm just raising questions. Is it wisdom reigning in those moments or is it fear of man reigning in those moments? One is being led from God. One is taking our social acceptance and making it God. And we just need to contend honestly with the Lord. Are we crafting idols out of the good gifts he's given? This church is a gift from God. But God is not confined to Redeemer Fellowship Church. God is bigger than this place, and we must never idolize this place. God has given pastors to the church as a gift. But I know I'm going to hear three or four amens from this, from the pastors. God is bigger than this pastoral team. And we must never idolize the men who lead us. Pastors cannot meet the greatest need that you have. Pastors can point you to him. Pastors can come alongside you and walk with you to him. But if you make your greatest hope the pastors of this church, even if they are faithful to the end, you will lack certainty in your hope. They've, been, they've not been equipped to provide you with hope and security. They've been equipped to take you to the God who reveals that he is a rock and a refuge. The fire and the cloud that went ahead of God's people were gifts from God. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Word of God, among other things, but it was not God. We've got to think rightly about God, or we will forever be prone to worshiping and serving what God has given, rather than God himself. Paul corrected the Corinthians for this. The beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, he says, not at the very beginning, it's chapter 3, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? Well, you see it. Who gave the growth? God gave it. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In our flesh, friends, here's what it reveals to us, these three things. It reveals that we love to create a God we can see, we can touch, because we love to have a God we can manage. And God says, no, no, no. My servants are not who your hope is in. My gifts 
are not who your hope is in. My creation is not in your hope is in. They all point to only one who is worthy of your hope. Now through these shall nots that we get in the book of Exodus here, we also see a wonderful implied shall. You shall worship God as he is and as he directs. Okay? You shall not do all of these other things. It's not God somehow sitting up there with this naughty list. Oh, you've worshipped, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you're out. No, no, no. He's, he's identifying for us all the things we shall not do. So we can see with white hot brilliance what he says we shall do. We shall come and worship God as he is and as he instructs. John 4, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, which is why we don't create things that are tangible for us to worship. So what do we put at the center of our worship services? We don't put statues. We don't put idols. We put truth at the center of our worship services. It explains the crucial centrality of the preaching of God's word. It includes why we sing songs about truth, why we preach truth. And the very moment your pastors stop preaching truth, you are called to correct them. Okay? Truth is at the center of the Christian worship. So we are allowed, let me answer this question to the artists among us, we are permitted to paint pictures or create statues of fish and birds. When it says, do not make an image of, it's not saying we're not allowed to participate in art. It's flatly saying we are not allowed to worship art. We are not allowed to worship these things because God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. Let me end with three very brief ways. If this is what we're supposed to avoid, everything that I've said, Rob, what are we now supposed to do? How, what do we do with this? Three very brief points of application. First, acknowledge your need. We must acknowledge that we are prone to wander, that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We love to possess a tangible, manageable God. We can find potential idols in what we prioritize, what we spend the most money on, what we fill our calendars with, and what we derive the most comfort from when we are stressed or hurt. Let me ask you, when you've come off an awful day, when you've walked through an impossibly difficult trial, is your first impulse to come to the Word of God in prayer or turn on Netflix or go to the fridge? Where are our first impulses? That's probably where we go for comfort most. So let's track that we, these things reveal that we are needy. So acknowledge your need. It does us no good to fool ourselves or to try to fool others. James 4, at the end of that passage, where he's talking about our idolatry creating conflict, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
So the first thing we can do is to acknowledge our need. Second is ask for help. Don't go at this alone. Don't keep it to yourself. Allow others to know who you are at your worst. What is it, what idol has the greatest temptation for you? And ask them to help you in this area. Gloria Furman has a wonderful bit of advice for you. If you're not sure what your idolatrous affections might be, she says, or you're at a loss for how you've been sinful, just ask your spouse or your friends. They might hesitate at first to tell you, but it's not because they're doubtful that you're a sinner. They're trying to figure out how to break the news to you. Now, as I read that quote, I I laughed the first time I read it too. And then I thought, wait, will I still find this humorous when I apply this quote? Right? Go ahead and ask someone, hey, in what areas do you feel like I am in need of the most growth? And then if that person, if you've created an environment where that person could be honest, just buckle up and take notes. Don't defend yourself. Don't talk it away. Receive what they say and take it to your Lord. Ask for help. And then lastly, adore the Savior. Idolatry gets its power when we believe lies about God. When we believe that God is not strong enough, or God is not loving enough, or he's not present enough, or compassionate enough. Idolatry gets its power when we believe that God is not God enough. And those lies cannot exist in the blazing face of truth. And so, as we adore the Savior, we come to the cross. We come to the place where the grip of lesser gods gives way to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We get to come to the cross as we are, and we see the one who took the punishment for all of your idolatry. We see the offer of freedom Jesus extends to you as you enjoy the fruit of his victory for you. And so as we adore the Savior, we entrust ourselves fully to the one who crushed the power of sin and death. So open your Bibles more frequently than Sunday mornings and learn about who this forgiving God is. Read much about him so you can strengthen your mind with truth. And then you're able to identify when the counterfeit comes along. Discover God's love and his mercy, his attributes, and his promises. So that we can, at one point, when we reach that place of confidence in what God says and in who he is, we can join the hymn writer who says, I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. We will genuinely be able to say, I have No longings for another. Why? Because my jealous God has made me satisfied in him alone. Friends, the love of Christ 
pursues us. The blood of Christ has purchased us. The resurrection of Christ has sealed us. The promises of Christ have sustained us. You notice we didn't do anything in that. God did all the work. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And without his sustaining grace, we'd spin off, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. So acknowledge your need, ask for help, adore the Savior. Leave behind the idols that hold your affections and your trust. Drag them against their will from the darkness into the light. Why? Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is stronger than they are. He is better than whatever idol you cherish, whatever comforter you turn to. Today, today, don't wait. Devote yourselves once again to God. Renew your vows, loving him with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. And you will be, by the grace of God, a keeper of the second commandment.